From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, The whole art of government consists in the art of being honest. Yeah, maybe back when art was mostly directed at depicting actual things. Now art, or at least the art of government, is more like abstract expressionism. The pictures that politicians paint are intended to mean whatever you, the voter, wants them to mean. In 2017, honesty is apparently passé. Except, perhaps, in congressional hearings. And you are deposed FBI Director James Comey talking about the manner of your firing. The administration then chose to defame me and, more importantly, the FBI by saying that the organization was in disarray, that it was poorly led, that the workforce had lost confidence in its leader. Those were lies, plain and simple. Or testifying about your awkward private sit-downs with Donald Trump. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting, and so I thought it really important to document. That combination of things I'd never experienced before, but it led me to believe I got to write it down, and I got to write it down in a very detailed way. I can definitively say the president's not a liar. Principal Deputy White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders. It's frankly insulting that that question would be asked. Perhaps more insulting to the nation's intelligence is that the question still needs to be asked. But in a headline-grabbing bit of honesty, Comey readily admitted that in order to supply some representational art to balance the president's more phantasmal depictions, he shared his meeting memos with a friend. The president tweeted on Friday after I got fired that I better hope there's not tapes. I woke up in the middle of the night on Monday night, because it didn't dawn on me originally, that there might be corroboration for our conversation. There might be a tape. And my judgment was I needed to get that out into the public square. And so I asked a friend of mine to share the content of the memo with a reporter. Didn't do it myself for a variety of reasons, but I asked him to because I thought that might prompt the appointment of a special counsel. And so I asked a close friend of mine to do it. In an era when official assertions command less authority than furtive ones, Comey resorted to a leak. Unconscionable, said Mark Kasowitz, the president's personal lawyer. It is overwhelmingly clear that there have been and continue to be those in government who are actively attempting to undermine this administration with selective and illegal leaks of classified information and privileged communications. Mr. Comey has now admitted that he is one of these leakers. For months now, so much of what we know about this administration, from the democratically disturbing to the gleefully humiliating, has come courtesy of an army of leakers. The the AP has reported that President Trump threatened to invade Mexico in a conversation with the Mexican president. A draft executive order that leaked out, it suggested the U.S. could reopen CIA black site prisons overseas and resume waterboarding. Sessions, the attorney general, spoke twice with Russian ambassador during Trump's presidential campaign. The Washington Post reporting that President Trump disclosed highly classified information to the Russians. And after each leak, a familiar refrain from the administration and the GOP. We're going to find the leakers. They're going to pay a big price for leaking. This has got to end, and probably it will take some convictions to put an end to it. Probably ought to put some handcuffs on them and put them in jail. This week, it seemed the hammer had finally fallen on a 25-year-old NSA contractor by the remarkable name of Reality Lee Winner. Her arrest for leaking documents to The Intercept was announced just one hour after the investigative site published a top-secret NSA document, one that detailed alleged attempts by Russian spies to hack individuals connected to our voting infrastructure. According to the government... Reality Winner was found out thanks to giant breadcrumbs left by The Intercept. The document had been creased. The government could see that and therefore could surmise it had been mailed. Barton Gelman was a longtime investigative reporter with The Washington Post and one of the journalists Edward Snowden leaked to. He's now a senior fellow with the Century Foundation. More conclusively, 
modern printers often have what's known as fingerprinting, tiny, almost invisible dots that identify the printer, the computer from which it was printed, and the date and time. Those things were easily readable by the forensics folks over at NSA. But it doesn't have to be nearly that high tech to give away the game. Many times, a sensitive document will go out with small watermarks or trivial-looking piece of formatting, a word change, a numbering change, sometimes even a missing page, so that when the government wants to do a leak investigation, it knows which copy the reporter has if the reporter shares the whole document. So in the course of authenticating the documents, The Intercept apparently also informed an intelligence source that the documents arrived in an envelope that was mailed from Augusta, Georgia. How was this wrong, Bart? So once you say you've got a printout, you've uh, you've told them quite a lot. The markings of the document showed that it was accessible by people in the NSA, other U.S. intelligence agencies, and intelligence partners in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and the U.K., Mm-hmm. So the universe of people who could have seen it or given it to the Intercept was quite large. It turns out that only six people in that whole universe printed it. And so knowing that it was printed, knowing that it was mailed, and then knowing where it was mailed from are almost checkmate for the source at that point. So when you're trying to validate the document, don't show the document. Don't talk about how you got the documents or where it came from. Don't even characterize the document. Limit the validation to the contents of the document. That is generally what I'm saying. Now, it's not possible for every reporter to be a communication security expert. What you need to have is a recognition. I have just crossed a line. I'm arriving at a place where I need to pause and I need to consult an expert. The puzzling thing here is that the Intercept has unusually strong bench of expertise on this very subject. It has two world-class experts on staff. What's baffling is that none of the four reporters or the editors involved in this story stopped and said, we better talk to those people about how do we protect this source. And let's face it, reality winner, if she is in fact the leaker, didn't exactly follow the best leaking practices. I mean, she didn't even follow The Intercept's own advice. On their site, they specifically warn against contacting them online in any way, especially from work, which she did. Is there a way to leak safely from an agency like the NSA nowadays? There's no such thing as a perfectly safe decision to disclose something that a powerful and well-resourced employer doesn't want you to disclose. A person in that position could have, for example, retyped the information, or the intercept could have done that rather than send a printout. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could have mailed it from a place very far from home and would have scrupulously avoided any open contact with the news organization in advance or afterward. In an unrelated matter, she had connected herself to The Intercept. She asked for a transcript of a podcast some months ago. The Intercept says that it didn't even know who the source was. If your source is truly anonymous, is it difficult to know how best to protect them? It's definitely harder when you don't know who it is, how the person had access to the material. That's what should light up a bulb for you that says... There are clues here that might not be meaningful to me, but could be very meaningful to investigators. It would not have been obvious to me from a standing start that there would be so many people who could see the document, but so few who printed it. Mm -hmm. But just out of caution, I'm very parsimonious with facts when I give them to the government. What I want to do is I want to say, I have a document with this title and this date, which says the following things. And these are the things I'm thinking about printing. Let's talk about these. You've noted that it seemed weird that The Intercept would make what seemed to be kind of rookie mistakes. The Intercept, in its statement on the matter, suggests that we should be critical of the government's version of how Reality Winner was apprehended, that what we know so far might not be the whole story. Look, Government affidavits for arrest warrants and charging documents are the government's version of events. You're going to want to see the evidence tested in court before you draw conclusions. And I sympathize that The Intercept can't talk about this right now. 
they may have something important to say about the way they handled the source or the way that the source behaved or the way the government behaved, and they're not able to say it for legal reasons now because anything they say could only do further harm to their source. But you believe that mistakes were made by The Intercept. They did post the article on their website so anyone could see it was a printout. I believe The Intercept made a series of very bad mistakes that doomed their source that they didn't have to make. The Intercept has real expertise at protecting communication security. I am certain that the reporters involved did not consult those experts because there's no chance that those experts would have approved the steps they took. And I have no explanation for that. I don't know how it happened. A lot of people worry that this episode marks the first step in the Trump administration's promised crackdown on leakers and that it will scare off the potential sources on which journalists and the public increasingly must depend for information. Do you have an opinion? I don't see any evidence in terms of action as yet that the Trump administration is crossing new lines. There have been leak investigations for as long as I've been a reporter, and that's not especially surprising. Under George W. Bush and then under Obama, there was the quite unhealthy innovation, I think, of charging news sources with espionage as if telling something to a reporter for purposes of a public report is the same mm -hmm. thing as telling a hostile foreign power for purposes of harming the United States. If it is espionage to tell your own fellow citizens something because by doing so you're also telling other countries, then we've lost the substantial meaning of espionage completely. Bart, thank you very much. Thank you. Barton Gellman is an investigative reporter for The Washington Post and a senior fellow with the Century Foundation. The Intercept declined our invitation for an interview. Coming up, a debate over when it makes sense for journalists to make unsavory deals for access. This is On The Media. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Z-Biotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Z-Biotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Last year, German historian Harriet Scharnberg released a paper with some startling allegations about the Associated Press's collaboration with the Nazis. She says the AP helped the Nazis portray a war of extermination as a conventional war. In turn, they remained the only Western news agency with access to the totalitarian regime. Indeed, Scharnberg's paper showed that during and immediately preceding the war, the AP had engaged in a photo exchange with the SS, serving as a pipeline for photos from Nazi Germany to American news outlets and providing photos which the Nazis misused in internal propaganda. Last month, the AP released a lengthy, detailed report of its own, countering some of Scharnberg's claims 
copying to others, and contextualizing its actions of 80 years ago. Journalist and former AP correspondent Maddie Friedman recently wrote a piece in Tablet called What the AP's Collaboration with the Nazis should teach us about reporting the news. The AP allowed its photographs to be used in some of the worst race propaganda. Scharnberg writes that in a book called The Jews in the USA, which was a Nazi publication, the AP was the leading provider of photographs. In another book that was published by the SS called The Subhuman, also about Jews, the AP was number three on the list of photo providers. And according to the AP's own report, the AP didn't protest these arrangements. At the time, it was just part of what you needed to do to keep the office open in Germany. In your article, the pamphlet called Jews in the USA features a photo of famous New York Jew Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it would be funny in any other context, I guess, but you see LaGuardia eating with his hands. He looks disgusting. He's kind of shoving food into his mouth. And it was meant, of course, to make the point that these people were subhuman. So can you tell me a little bit more about how AP's collaboration with the Nazis in order to maintain a reporting force in there shaped Americans' understanding of the war and the Nazi regime? That's a great question. And Scharnberg, being an academic, is very careful about it because these things are, of course, very hard to measure. It's hard to know how photographs affected public opinion and whether it, you know, put off the American entrance into the war. But she does say that it's hard to believe that Americans weren't affected by images that showed the Germans as these triumphant warriors and their enemies as subhuman. So how did the AP's choices differ from those made by other publications at the time? Both Scharnberg's report and the AP's counter-report mention the very different tack taken by the New York Times in the mid-30s when the AP had to deal with the Nazi regime's new race laws, which required all the bureaus to get rid of their Jewish employees. The AP did that, and the Times photo operation in Germany did not, and they left. Mm -hmm. So by the end of it, the AP was... Scharnberg calls it the key channel for German propaganda because they were the last man standing in terms of Western media. They aided in the relocation of Jews, they said? They admit, yes, the Nazis demanded that we fire or we remove our Jewish employees from the photo bureau, and we did. But look, in retrospect, that was for the best, and of course it was, but I don't think that's really a justification for the decision. When you're faced with a regime making demands of you, you have two choices. You can maintain your integrity and leave, or you can begin to compromise and stay. And it doesn't end with the first compromise, because if you stay, you know it's just going to be compromise after compromise. And that's, of course, what happened. Okay, so you wrote that, quote, the people in charge at the AP were wrong in 1935, and it matters today because they and their competitors are wrong now in similar ways. I see a lot of similarities in decisions made not only by the AP, but by other news organizations who maintain offices in dictatorial regimes. And I give two examples in the article in Tablet. One is a fascinating expose that came out in 2014 written by a veteran journalist named Nate Thayer, who's an old Southeast Asia hand. And he published a a description of AP's bureau in North Korea. The AP made an arrangement with the North Korean regime, which is, of course, one of the worst regimes on earth to open a bureau in North Korea. And Thayer writes in his expose that the employees in the bureau are North Koreans who are paid by the AP, but answer to the regime. The agreement that allowed the AP to open the bureau allows the AP to distribute North Korean propaganda images, like those beautiful choreographed rallies. At the same time, allows for the operation of a bureau inside North Korea that's clearly not an independent news collecting organization because no such thing could possibly exist in North Korea. And my own experience as a correspondent here in Israel for the AP involved A similar situation in Gaza, where the AP has an office under Hamas rule in Gaza, and maintaining the office in Gaza requires accommodations and arrangements with Hamas that end up warping the coverage, and I experienced it firsthand as a reporter, and that kind of clued me into this issue. In that case, certain rules were made clear to local staffers in Gaza, AP staffers, and they had to follow them, and you as an editor would be warned not to put the Gazan staff at risk. Your staff is at the mercy of the regime. So I think that journalists tell themselves that they have the upper hand in this relationship, that they're going to maneuver inside 
the rules and get the story out to the extent possible. But in a relationship like the one that the AP has in Gaza or in North Korea or that it had in Germany, the regime always has the upper hand. Then instead of getting the story out, what you end up doing is lending your brand to some of the worst players on earth and misleading your readers about what's going on, giving your readers an illusion of coverage rather than doing the honest thing, which is telling them, listen, our hands are tied and we can't cover this place. Let us stipulate that it's not just the AP. I mean, I remember a very notable example around the time of the Iraq war when CNN conceded that maintaining a bureau in Saddam Hussein's Iraq meant making enormous compromises in the reporting in order to protect the lives of their staff. So the question, I guess, is what are you getting in exchange for maintaining a bureau in places like those? I would argue that you lose much more than you get because you end up providing your readers with the pieces of the puzzle that the regime wants to get out. And you end up leaving out so much that I think it's not a stretch to call this kind of coverage a lie. Give me a little more on that. Why is part of the story worse than none of the story? Let's just take this as an example. Dave and Mike go into a house. Mike pulls a knife on Dave and Dave shoots Mike. I report it like this. Two guys go into a house and Dave shoots Mike. I haven't lied to you, right? I've mm. told you what happened and I haven't invented any details, but I've left out what might be the most important detail in the story, which is that Mike pulled a knife on Dave before Dave shot Mike. Can you give me an example from real life, maybe from when you were editing reports from Gaza where leaving out part of the story left the opposite impression? Sure. During the fighting there in 2014, there was a bank of international cameramen standing outside the Shifa Hospital, which is the big hospital in Gaza City, getting footage of ambulances bringing in casualties. When ambulances brought in civilians, the cameramen filmed. And when ambulances brought in fighters, Hamas fighters, an official at the hospital signaled to them that they needed to turn off their cameras, and they did. Mm. Again, not just the AP, all of the international cameramen who were were at the hospital. Now, you broadcast the footage, and the footage of wounded civilians is, of course, not a fabrication, right? That footage is real. But you're helping Hamas give the impression that only civilians are dying, which is the impression that they want to give. So you haven't lied, but you're giving your viewers a story that is essentially a false story. Right. But the AP said in a statement attached to its report that it never compromised its independence or standards. They're not admitting that standards have been compromised. Anyone who has been involved in any kind of coverage like that knows that your standards are history and you'll end up compromising them further to obscure the compromises that you've made. What are the options for journalists rather than compromising themselves? There are two options. One is to make the compromises but explicitly explain to your readers what you're doing. So you say, okay, I'm in Iran. The rules of reporting in Iran are A, B, C. And that would be attached to every article coming out of a place like that. That's one way to do it. The second option is to think about this in a completely different way and say, okay, I can't cover this country. But what I can do is I can locate staff in a place outside that country where I can look in, and that's easier and easier as the movement of information becomes freer. You know, to take North Korea as an example, take the money that the AP is spending to maintain essentially a fictional bureau inside North Korea and put it into a bureau in South Korea that covers North Korea, that works intelligence sources, spies, refugees, dissidents. And you'll get a picture that is not perfect, of course, but it will be an honest picture. And then you can tell your readers the constraints that you're working under. The AP in Germany, for example, could have pulled its people out of Germany and put them in Spain. There were a lot of spies in Spain because it was a neutral country that was near all the combatants and governments in exile were coming in out of Spain, refugees and people coming from other parts of Europe. And if you had really smart people in Spain trying to understand what was going on in Germany, you might have ended up with a much more accurate picture. There's an automatic bias in favor of access that actually ends up misleading readers more than you would do if you had really Really smart people outside those countries looking in and trying to figure out what's going on. Maddie, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Brooke. Maddie Friedman is a writer and journalist. His latest book is called Pumpkin Flowers, A Soldier's Story, and it's a memoir of war. <laughs> 
John Danishevsky is the vice president and editor-at-large for Standards at the Associated Press. He oversaw and edited its internal report on the AP in Nazi Germany. He says the substance of Schoenberg's paper is correct, but her conclusions are those of an academic, not a journalist whose primary mission is to report the news on which the whole world relies, even if that means firing your Jewish employees. Yes, the AP was told in 1933 to get rid of its Jewish employees. It fought that order quite vigorously and tried to enlist the U.S. Embassy to help, resisted for as long as it could, and then when it could no longer be resisted, found ways to find jobs for these people in the United States, in France, in Austria, in places where they would be safe. Austria? Well, at that time, in that year, Mm -hmm. Austria was considered safe. And then when the Nazis came into Austria, they arrested that photographer again, and the AP again intervened Mm -hmm. to get him released. So there was a lot of care. There was a lot of anger on the part of the AP bureau chief being forced to follow what he said was a ridiculous and cruel and senseless order. But it's different for a news agency which has a responsibility to cover a country for the entire news media in the United States to simply pull out of Germany when there was so much essential and vital news and the whole world was hanging on what was going on in Germany and fears of war were coming and the anti-Semitism and the preparations for the Holocaust, all of which we reported in detail. So if we had decided, well, we can't be in that country, the information would have been lost. I just don't understand why AP didn't terminate its photo service. That would have cost AP some revenue. The SS were, quote, good customers. But when you saw that these pictures were being used in a way that provided propaganda, wouldn't it have been worth closing the Bureau so as not to become a party to that kind of distortion? Well, there were newsworthy photos that were being produced, and they were eagerly sought in the United States. They were being reviewed by editors in Germany, reviewed again by editors in London, and they were reviewed again by editors in New York for their news value. We discarded photos that we saw as propaganda, but scenes from the battlefronts, Hitler's rallies, uh, things like that, it's news that people need to see. There were times when I think people did make bad judgments, which we do outline in the report. Mm -hmm. But as the true horror of the Hitler regime came through, there was more and more emphasis on making sure that we were portraying it accurately, both in photos and in words. And nothing in our research led us to believe that any of this was about making money. It was about getting the news, getting the photos. They did say that the SS were good customers and that they would lose revenue. I'm not going to say that was the number one concern, but it was certainly cited at the time. There was one incident in which that was mentioned, and that person shortly thereafter was relieved of his position. In 1941, the Nazis took over the photo bureau and entered into a photo exchange arrangement with the AP, By that point, the AP was part of a pipeline for Nazi propaganda. As far as I understand it, there was no longer even a non-Nazi AP presence on the ground. Can there be any justification for that kind of cooperation? In 1941, the AP staff was arrested, held for five months, and then exchanged in a prisoner exchange. As you said, the AP photo service was taken over by the Nazis. And during the deportation of the AP bureau chief on a sealed train, the Nazi who got possession of the service said that they would exchange photos with the AP before the war. And there had been a lot of discussion, how will we continue to get photos out of occupied Europe if the United States enters the war? This played into the decision to exchange photos. Those images were approved by the Nazis supplied by the Nazis. Any photos coming out of Germany were labeled as coming from German sources or Nazi-approved photos or Nazi-censored photos. But just as we get photos from different sources now, the importance is transparency. 
the editors at the New York Times, Washington Post, would say this is the German version of events. In the context of the time when photos from every country were being controlled, there wasn't such a thing as pictures of Hitler that were being taken by freelance stringers or something like that. It just didn't exist. So these were important photos. They showed things like the first bombing of Berlin. They showed Germans retreating across Germany as the war went on. Even today, as we sometimes get photos from sources inside Iran or inside Syria, we say, this is what we know about this photo. This is how we got it. And that was the same practice they had then. Your report makes clear that the AP should have done more at the time to officially protest German officials misusing its images for propaganda. The report also suggests that the AP should have refused to employ German photographers with active political affiliations to the Nazis. So let me raise with you Maddie Friedman's principal issue, the one that he thinks media organizations need to rethink. This is a very different world with regard to media, obviously. Uh, there are sources and images coming from everywhere when reporting fully and fairly would put their own staff at risk. Wouldn't it be better to simply report from nearby and offer the best story you can from there rather than a partial story from within, which may serve to mislead inadvertently rather than inform the audience? Well, I don't think it's an either-or. You can be inside a country getting what you can, and at the same time reporting from outside and getting what you can there. And actually, that's the typical thing we do. Whether it's in Syria, Iran, North Korea, we always seek a wide net of sources to give us a full picture. So when Maddie says, well, in North Korea, the Bureau is prescribed and you should be talking to spies and exiles, well, you know, we do. That's what most of our reporting about North Korea is. In Syria, when it was not safe for reporters to go in, we use telephones, Skype, IM, to get accounts from people inside. We spoke to people who were fleeing the scenes and put together the story that way. There is value in being there. And in North Korea, where we have very little freedom to move about, uh, we can still see things that are happening there that have value for us. What you're going to see from Korea is precisely what the government wants you to see. It is sometimes a value to know what the government puts out about itself. People think that we have North Korean staff who are contributing the news to the AP. What we have is international staff that go in there regularly on a monthly basis. Their words are not censored. Their images are not censored. There is always a concern for the safety of reporters, not ones that fly in and out, but who are based in repressive regimes. And there are sometimes deals struck in order to ensure their safety. Do you worry about those kinds of compromises? Yes, we do. We don't want to put our journalists in danger. As, as I'm sure, Brooke, you know, we've lost 30 people in AP's history covering the news. I know the Gaza War is a, a subject that's very important to Maddie because he was there. He had to pull punches when he was at the AP to protect the reporter based in Gaza. But I saw that he wrote that. I think editors have to make judgments on things like this, and the AP certainly, in every piece of copy it ever moved out of that war, talked about Hamas firing rockets into Israel, showed video of rockets being fired into Israel. So I don't want it to be suggested that the AP did not cover the crimes of Hamas in that war. I guess Maddie has less confidence in that judgment from where he sat in Gaza than you do. And I guess it's up to every individual news consumer to gauge their level of confidence. Yes, and that's why the transparency is important and why it's important for editors to be discriminating and for news consumers to be discriminating. John, thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. John Danishevsky is the vice president and editor-at-large for Standards at the Associated Press.
Coming up, enough with reality. Time to move on to augmented reality. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Reality, so quaint, but in so many ways, it just isn't pulling its weight these days. Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. Obviously, when reality doesn't comport with ideology or religion or just unrequited desire, it's easily dislodged by lies, fantasy, or unfounded belief. On the experiential front, when mere two-dimensional media leave us cold, the holy crap immersive world of virtual reality spirits us into its 360-degree thrall. Oh my God! Oh my God! And then there's just plain navigating the physical world with all its annoying limits of time, space, and human anatomy that make it so difficult to find your car in a parking lot or perform brain surgery. How cool would it be if we could just don a pair of goggles and digitally augment ordinary analog reality with information, 3D images, and even the sense of touch? Yeah, well, we can. That thing called augmented reality is here. And more of it, much more, is on its way. A profound redefinition of normal keeps happening. And it's about to happen again, because within five years from now, the revolution will be over. That was NYU computer science professor Ken Perlin speaking Tuesday in New York at AR in Action, a conference of augmented reality pioneers and their financiers. We will all be wearing lightweight eyewear that'll show virtual objects in the world around us in high resolution, high frame rate, extremely wide field of view. Smart glasses will become socially invisible, just like the glasses that many of you are wearing today. How great is that? Strap on some goggles and manipulate floating holograms with your fingertips. Repair an espresso maker from the other side of the world. Or see inaccessible structures turned inside out, such as a diseased brain. The patient going to be in the OR, lie on the bed. We have our spatial understanding camera. So during the process of the surgery, you can actually see what's going on inside the patient's head. This is superimposing MRI images onto an actual brain during surgery? Yes. Medicine accounts for many of AR's early successes. This is Keith Boski of ODG, manufacturer of remarkably compact smart glasses, which are great for watching movies in an airplane or helping a paramedic treat an accident victim. The golden hour is right there when the person just had the accident, but ambulances can take a long time to get them to the hospital. So the EMT can have the doctor see what they're seeing, and the doctor can walk them through exactly what to do while they're there. And imagine augmenting sight and sound with touch through the science of haptics. Robin Alter of Ultra Haptics demonstrated how ultrasound can trigger discrete sensations through the air. We are getting better and better. Over the next year, we'll have more refined textures. So right now we're at hard and soft, and over time we'll get to cotton and rock, and then we'll get to silk and sandpaper. 
All very promising, he said, for e-retailing, touch the goods, and, duh, porn. Also, turns out you can shoot lightning bolts through your fingers. Open your hands and face them down, see if you feel it. I do, yes, there's uh, electricity surging through my hands. (laughs) These are sound waves, not electricity at all. This isn't some World's Fair Expo of the distant future. Microsoft, Google, Apple, and billions of dollars worth of venture capital are already in the market with various headsets, software platforms, and developer tools, uncannily mimicking the wizardry long imagined in literature and film. To us? To us. We hope to see the wonderful Wizard of Oz. In 1901, L. Frank Baum of Wizard of Oz fame wrote in his novel The Master Key about magical spectacles that project information about the people the wearer encounters. In the 1956 film Forbidden Planet, ingenue Anne Francis is holographically projected into the presence of the brilliant Dr. Morbius. A statue. That's Altera. Simply a three-dimensional image, Commander. But it's a lie. A year ago, fantasy and AR themselves merged in the form of Pokemon Go. Recall the swarms of Pokemon Go-getters, led by cell phone images, invading public spaces to capture Lapras or Snorlax. Pokemon Go spawned mobs with a silly game. What the technology promises is no mere plaything. To NYU's Ken Perlin, we are on the brink of altering human capabilities and behavior on a mass scale. The phones are a transitional technology. They are going to fade away, and they are going to be replaced eventually by unobtrusive eyewear. Everybody will wear it, and no one will notice they're wearing it anymore. You don't go up to someone and say, oh, I see you're wearing shoes today. Soon, says technologist and conference founder John Werner, we won't be satisfied interacting with the world without the third dimension. We're 3D beings, okay? We went from the mainframe to the desktop to the laptop to now mobile, held hostage by rectangles. You haven't lived until you started playing with 3D objects and realizing You know, I I don't know what it would be like to see black and white your whole life and then suddenly see color. An unbelievable experience I can now personally confirm. To Werner, though, what's unfathomable is limiting our computing to two dimensions, like that bizarre planet in an episode of Star Trek Next Generation. The probe's point of view reveals that the objects exist entirely in two dimensions, on a single plane. They have length and width, but not height. Virtually flat. Werner put his livelihood where his vision was, bolting MIT's Media Lab to join the AR startup Meta. And you'd be forgiven for gulping a bit as his gamble, because we've been here before, right? The gadget will bring convenience to consumers some may have never imagined. With simple vocal commands, the specs are being touted as allowing wearers to take photos, send text messages, and record video, all hands-free. It's just, it's just really sheer magic. Only four years ago, Google Glass was the next big thing. Until it wasn't. Google Glass, I would not say, was some big success. You know, far from it. Battery life is still meaning. It's, I can't keep it on very often, otherwise it'll die. The era of Google Glass has ended, at least for now. Yeah, and for good measure, the people who did plunk down $1,500 for Google Glass were derided as pretentious glass holes. But several billion dollars say the stars are now properly aligned. Advances in miniaturization and processing power, the advent of 5G mobile wireless, and the ubiquity of indispensable smartphone apps that are all but begging to be augmented into something even more magical. John Warner's meta-colleague, Ryan Pamplin. So if I want an Uber when I leave here, I want to be able to reach down into my holographic belt, grab my Uber orb, open my hand, have it show me a 3D terrain map of the surrounding area, drop a pin where I want to go or say where I want to go, and then I want the car to come. And when it comes, I want to see a line drawn on the ground to the car. The driver will look over at me and see an arrow over my head and know I'm his passenger. There's a lot of really exciting use cases Shopping, learning, design, manufacturing, collaboration, communication. I really think there's no industry that will go unaffected by this technology. 
This presumes, of course, that the hardware is affordable and nobody wearing it gets bullied for looking like a dork. The latest generation Meta Viewer is still kind of bulky, like a bike helmet with a visor. Microsoft's HoloLens isn't much smaller. The industry understands it can't grow exponentially until the tech shrinks dramatically. I would say 2018, you're going to see something that's smaller, lighter, portable. And eventually, if you want to fast forward to, let's say, 2030-ish, it's a computer brain interface that's reading and writing to your senses. The year 2030, exactly as distant as 2004, the year of Abu Ghraib and Shrek 2. So, wait, what did he say? It's a computer brain interface that's reading and writing to your senses. Yeah, that. This technology promises to give speech to stroke victims or enable you to send a stuck-in-traffic message with your mind. Wow. It can map and store brain activity and biometrics for a deeper understanding of human behavior. Double wow. And it can maybe even influence that behavior. Yikes. This is worth thinking about. Hard. Professor Ken Perlin is bullish about AR's utopian future. He's the future is only five years away guy, but he's also really scared about dystopia. There was a day in March when two things happened on the same day. Our Republican-controlled Congress decided to be absolutist about the rights of telecoms to be able to scrape your data and sell it to advertisers. And the reason that this was so worrisome is that, well, now you no longer have the rights to your own information. And the same day, Elon Musk announced the formation of his new company, Neuralink, which promises direct brain connections to the information world around you. Musk has taken an active role in developing what he calls neural lace technology, which involves installing tiny electrodes in the brain to transmit thoughts. So as I see it, under the now new laws, anyone who is responsible for the pipe between your brain and the world around you is allowed to sell your thoughts and uh, capitalize on them and fundamentally read them with impunity. And you don't really own your thoughts anymore legally. Remember, AR is two-way technology. Users will constantly feed the signals of what they see and thereby map the physical landscape of the populated world, including faces, in real time, retrievable by anybody for who knows what. In that world, you can augment, but you cannot hide. Georgia Tech professor Janet Murray, author of Hamlet on the Holodeck, thinks the ethical implications of AR are one of several reasons the technology will develop much more slowly than its evangelists predict. I can see that people do speak rather casually about a world in which a person is under surveillance 24 hours a day. And I find that disturbing. And I also find it naive for technologists to believe that that is going to be something that people will welcome. I guess I should in some way be telling you that that's not going to happen, but a very scary future is ahead of us. Robin Alter of Ultra Haptics, the company whose technology generates the artificial sense of touch. Because it's not just about our personal data, it's about our biometrics, heart rate, sweat, eye movement, pupil movement, what parts of the brain are lighting up at different points, and you can start to see what they're thinking. Then guide them to buy your product. Do you want them to fall in love? As things move forward over the next five to 10 years, it's going to be a scary reality of what is possible. Here's who you cannot count on to exhibit self-control. Advertisers. The money that will underwrite AR content is the same that is barraging you now with pop-ups, autoplays, screen takeovers, and tracking you every step of the way. Now, imagine that one inch from your eyeballs, as filmmaker Keiichi Matsuda did in his video called Hyper Reality, depicting a grotesque carnival midway of audiovisual distraction. Put that in your pipe and augment it. It is exactly such side effects that Georgia Tech's Janet Mary thinks 
will slow down the future. It is delusional to think that we're going to have a functional metaverse in five years, as people here seem to believe. That does not happen overnight. And it does not happen from a magic leap of secret technology that all of a sudden arrives and and life has changed for everybody. On the other hand, before you moderate your expectations too much, consider all those big Silicon Valley bets on AR. And remember the words of Philip K. Dick, whose Minority Report predicted this technology in all its chilling glory. Skepticism is all well and good, but as Dick once observed, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leia Fetter. We had more help from Jane Vaughn, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist, composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. One last thing, listeners. We're doing a show about how the effects of climate change are seeping into our culture, and we'd like your help. As human impact on the planet becomes more visible in rising seas, droughts, powerful storms, disappearing species, we're going to need new words to make sense of it all. Here's an example. Solastalgia. It means sadness or yearning for a landscape that climate change has rendered unrecognizable. So, can you come up with a new word that captures something about our changing planet? Perhaps a word for a beach eroded by rising seas, or maybe a word for an unseasonably warm day in winter. Record a voice memo and email it to onthemedia at wnyc.org. And please include your name and where you're calling from. You might just be featured in an upcoming show. Thanks. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.